You're listening to the Restoration Church Bible Study. Join us each week as Gloria Lee takes us verse by verse through the Old Testament. So we are in the book of Esther, and it's not in chronological order in the Bible. Actually, it should be before Nehemiah, and that's why, one of the reasons that we're doing it now. Now, Ezra... Then we're going to do Nehemiah after that, yeah, like it should be. So Ezra records the first return of the people from captivity, and then some 40 years pass, and then Esther comes on the scene, and then 40 more years pass, and then Nehemiah comes on the scene. So Esther comes between chapter 6 and 7 of, of Ezra, and so that's why we're inserting it right now. So um, it is between the rebuilding of the temple by the decree of Cyrus and the rebuilding of the walls by Nehemiah uh, under Artaxerxes. So um, Esther is the last of the historical books in the Bible. Its main character is named Esther, and her name means Venus or the morning star, and it sheds its light after all the other stars have ceased to shine, and while the sun still delays rising. So the deeds of Queen Esther cast a ray of light toward Israel's history when they are in a very dark time. So the significance of the book of Esther is that it testifies to the silent watch that God has over his people, Israel. His name does not is not mentioned any anywhere in in Esther God's name, but his providence over the people is so conspicuous, more so maybe than any other book. So a mere remnant has returned to Jerusalem, and the mass of the nation preferred the easy and lucrative life in the Persian rule. And God did not forsake his people. So what he does here for Judah, he's doing always for his covenant people. So this book is in seven parts. The first chapter is the story of Vashti. The second part is Esther made queen. The third part is the conspiracy of Haman, and that's in chapter 3. Chapter 4 through 7 is the courage of Esther bringing deliverance. The fifth is the vengeance, is 8 through 9, 19. And then number six is the Feast of Purim, which is the rest of chapter 9. And then epilogue epilogue is chapter 10. So that's kind of a history of Esther there. So let's start with chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus, Sarah, who reigned over 127 provinces. This is from India to Ethiopia. He had a huge empire. And in those days when King Ahasuerus uh, sat on the throne in his kingdom, which was in Susan, the citadel, or the winter capital. Now, this king, Ahasuerus, is well known in history, though it's more commonly known as King 
ex, uh, exeris. Exerces. Exerces, right. I'm sorry. And he inherited the vast Persian kingdom from his father Darius, who we saw in the book of Ezra. So the fact of the uh, existence of this king and circumstance is extremely well attested. Archaeologists have found the very palace where all of these events happened, which is pretty exciting. This, this time was about 483 B.C. So Ahasuerus was planning for a doomed invasion of Greece. He wanted Greece to be a part of his uh, kingdom, and so he was planning to attack them. Now, at this time... The city of Athens, which is in Greece, was in its glory, and they had just been celebrating the 79th Olympic Games. So at this time, the Persian Empire was the largest the world had ever seen. It covers what we know today as Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel. Also, parts of modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Libya, and Arabia. Also, at this time, Ezra had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And the temple had been rebuilt, but it was not in the, in the glory of Solomon's days or his temple. So in 40 years, under Ahasuerus... Artaxerxes I, Nehemiah, would return, and he's going to come back and build the walls of Jerusalem. All right, verses 3 through 9. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and his servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. It was 180 days that they had a feast. That's six months. How would you like to have a party for six months? And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all of the people who were present in Susan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, in addition with the law, accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, so they didn't have to drink if they didn't want to. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. <clears throat> Now, Queen Vasti also had a feast for her women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
So the first feast was for all the government officials. Wait, where Ahasuerus showed off all his glory, the splendor of the riches of his kingdom for 180 days. The second one was just for the people of Shushan. And the basic reason for these feasts was pride. He wanted to show off all that he had to as many people as he could. And he wanted to impress people with his wealth and his power. And this is the typical, the way that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over other people. They, they wanted to show them how much power they had, how much majesty they had. So there's little doubt that, that Ahasuerus, it's so hard for me to pronounce, uh, paid for this feast out of the treasury. So in verse 6, it talks about there were white and blue linen curtains. In the, uh, in the ancient Hebrew, the white material is literally described as white stuff. White stuff, and I'm going, hmm. So this is evidence, they say, that Esther was not written by a woman but by a man because a woman gives more detail to the material than what a man would do is what they say. So um, each guest in the ancient feast, each guest was obliged to drink at the party. And at this second feast, the king said, no, you can just drink as you want to. You don't have to take a drink. In, in the other uh, feast, they had to take a drink or they had to leave the feast. So in verse 10 through 11, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so he's drunk as a skunk, I guess, right here. <laughs> He commanded, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Minhum, Abizda, Harbena, Bigtha, Ab Agatha, Agtha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty in, to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So the clear implication here is that Ahasuerus was drunk, and according to Jewish tradition, this request came because they were having an argument over which, con- which country or providence had the most beautiful women. And the king wanted to show that he had the most beautiful woman in all of his kingdom. So he decided to settle the issue by putting her on public display. And it's not specifically said, but the implication is that Vashti was obligated to show herself in an immodest way. Now, if you go back to... Um, verse 11, I think it was. It says she was to wear her royal crown. It doesn't say anything about royal robes. 
or any other kind of attire there. So some think that maybe he wanted her just to appear with just her crown on. Yeah. So maybe verse... That, maybe that's why she refused. Probably so. Or, if not that, maybe some kind of clothing that was revealed. very scanty or you see through or something like that. Well, he's drunk. So. Yeah, he's drunk yeah, and so he, are all the he, others. He may be feeling pretty good too. Oh, he was feeling good. And what woman wants to go into a group of men who are all drunk wearing very little? I mean, it just doesn't happen. So verse 12, when Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs, therefore the king was furious and his anger burned with him. Now, Vashti was not a follower of God, but she had enough wisdom and modesty to know that what he asked of her was not the right thing to do. Of course, the Bible says that wives have a special responsibility to submit to their husbands. Uh, In Ephesians 5.33, it says, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. Yet it does not mean that a wife must obey her husband if it causes her to sin. So every command to submit on a human level has to be by a higher obligation to obey God rather than man. So Christians have to do it in a way that um, it is submissive but still respectful to do so. So it's impossible to say what attitude Vashti had in this situation. Now, the Jewish tradition, which I talk about ever so often, says that her, review, her refusal had nothing to do with modesty. And these stories say that she was ready to appear before the banqueters completely unclothed, except that God smote her with leprosy just as she received the request. Now, most people say, well, that's just a fanciful tradition, and it probably is. But anyway, she was in a very dangerous situation. And it does not seem that she put herself in here because she wasn't even at the banquet. So verse 13 through 22, the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Mimuthan, seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do with Vasti? According to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mimunkin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vasti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all of the provinces of King 
Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excess contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So in this part, when the king's uh, decree, which he will make, is proclaimed through all the empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands both great and small. And the reply pleased the kings and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mimuskan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, in its own language, that each man should be master of in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So, when King Ahasuerus heeded this advice from Mimunskan, he showed himself to be unreasonable and wrong. Now, he should have honored the dignity of the queen. And yet, the profile of Ahasuerus shows him to be unreasonable and foolish. Let me tell you what he did. On one occasion, he executed all the builders of a bridge because an ocean storm destroyed the bridge. So he just killed everybody that built it. And then he commanded that the water and the waves be whipped and chained to punish the sea. Now, how stupid is that? I mean... It's just so unreasonable. So anyway, the purpose of this harsh treatment of Vashti was so that she would not set a bad example for other women of Persia. And Ahasuerus wanted to reinforce the idea of a man's leadership in the home. And they were afraid that this this, uh, action of Queen Vashti would make other wives despise their husbands and that there would be contempt and wrath. And they wanted to ensure that the man then was going to be master over his own house. And so the goal here is reasonable and speaks the need within every man to have respect and honor from his wife. So, who has Ephesians 5.33? Do you, Bob? Or do you, Kim? Yeah. It's nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Okay, we've taught a study that called Love and Respect, and it talks about a woman wants love, but a man would rather have respect for love from, from his wife. So a woman's respect is, is the greatest thing that can, she can show to her husband. However, here, the means used to gain and preserve the respect was very foolish by the king. So you cannot demand respect from your wife. It has to be given freely. Other than that, it's not worth anything. So are there any questions or comments on this first chapter? Okay. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vasti. And this thing pleased the king, and he did so. So this is broader than just the events of the previous chapter. Later on in, in, in this chapter, in verse 16, it says that there was a four-year span between chapters 1 and 2. Four years had passed. And during that time, the king had made an attack against Greece and had failed miserably. And so he came home, he was a defeated man, and what he wanted was sensual diversions. So the plan was to assemble this harem for him from the most beautiful women in the land, to bring them into his harem and to choose the most favorable woman to be the new queen instead of Vashti. So the ancient Jewish historian Josephus says that they gathered together 400 women. Okay, verse 5. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew by the name of Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivities that had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar had, had come against Jerusalem and taken them to Babylon. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, because she did not have a father or a mother. And she was very lovely. She was a very beautiful young lady. And when her mother and father died, Mordecai then took her as his own daughter. Now, they were cousins. And anyway, they came to Persia in one of the ways of relocation from the Babylonians. And 
when it conquered that land. And Esther, whose Jewish name, Hadashah, means myrtle. The Persian name, Esther, means star. I said that at the very beginning, Venus. And she was raised then by Mordecai in prophetic symbolism, the myrtle would replace the briars and the thorns of the desert. That's what myrtle means. So that depicts the Lord's forgiveness and the acceptance of his people. So they were part of the large Jewish community that was forced to relocate from this land of Judah, and they did not decide to return to Judah when they were able to. So in the days of Mordecai and Esther, the land of Judah was still considered very backward and very wild. So the Hebrew for lovely and beautiful is literally beautiful in form and lovely to look at. Or as the NIV says, lovely in form and features. So she must have been really beautiful. So verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under this custody of Haggai that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, it seems that Esther really didn't have a choice here. And Haggai was the king's eunuch, a man entrusted with the oversight of all the women, all of the king's harem. So according to Baldwin, Haggai is specifically mentioned by the Greek historian Herodotus as being an officer of King Ahasuerus. So verse 9 Now, the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave her beauty preparations besides her allowance. So he gave her more than what he usually would give the other women. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So she obtained favor with Haggai, the man in authority over her, and in this, her godliness gave the fulfillment of Proverbs 3, 3 through 4. Do you have that? Okay. Okay, so she must have known this scripture and had done it. Because of this favor, he gave her special beauty preparations beyond her allowance, and he gave her these maidservants. So the ancient Hebrew word for beauty preparations is from the root word that means to scour or to polish. So they wanted to make are very beautiful, even more so than she was. Yes. 
Yeah. So verse 10 and 11, Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had told her not to. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's court quarters to learn of well, Esther's welfare and what was going on with her. Now there are situations where God may not want us to say immediately that we are Christians. Not that we want to hide it from them, but that it just may not be the right timing and then tell about it later. Um, apparently, this is what Mordecai sensed was the right thing to do, and Esther agreed with him. So in that verse, tw- verse 11, every day he paced in front of the court of the women's quarters so that he could learn what was going on with Esther because he loved her and had a lot of concern for her, and she was in a potentially dangerous place. So verse 12 through 14, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the women. For there were the days of their preparation appointed, six months with the oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So thus prepared, each young woman, now listen to this, this is, this is interesting. Each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In verse 14, in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless he delighted in her and called for her by name. Oh, she's Persia was one of the countries famous for the aromatic perfumes that they used and the ancient customs of preparations for brides, including ritualistic baths, plucking of the eyebrows, the painting of the hands and feet with henna, facial makeup, and applications of beautifying paste all over the body. Yes, and all of these pastes were to purify the skin, to lighten the skin, and cover any, take care of any blemishes that were on the skin. So one reason for the lengthy time of the preparation was so that they could tell if the woman was pregnant or not when they first got her. So they stayed, they did the preparation for a whole year. If she was pregnant, of course, she would have had a child by that time. So he did not want to claim any children that were not his. So they waited a year. Matthew Poole says that the oils and perfumes... The oils and perfumes were necessary because the bodies of men and women 
in those hot countries did of themselves yield ill scents or aromas. So uh, perspiration did not smell good. So if not corrected and qualified by art, then it needed something. So thus prepared, each young woman went out to the king, and it sounds wonderful, you know, a year of constant spa treatments and and pampering, and yet the destiny of these women would also be considered uh, one evening with the king. Wasn't there a movie by that name? Okay. Yeah. One evening with the king. And if he chose this woman out of these 400, then there were 399 women left. Uh, She would be the king's uh, companion. She would be the next queen, the one he chose, until she displeased him, and then he would put her away. But as for the 399... They were banished to the harem, and they stayed there either as considered the wife or a concubine of the king, but rarely, if ever, did she see him afterwards, and they were never free to marry another man, and so they lived as a widow the rest of their lives. So that's how it was, and we're going to stop there, and we'll pick up it in verse 15. Thank you for listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. If you would like to watch our message live or looking for more information about our church, visit us, follow us on Facebook, Restoration Church.